Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. She is the author of Franchise, uh, which is a book about America's largest and most popular food chains. Let me welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Marcia Chatelaine. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? I am awesome. I'm awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, I actually wanted to read something. Let me call it up because I have your pages up and thank you for sending them over. Um, in your preface, you said, from the moment that black America was forced to pursue Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community without him to the struggle to make black lives matter, the Golden Arches has been part of the story of, of race in this country in ways that go far beyond corporate advertising campaigns or statements. As this book strives to show, McDonald's has helped determine for better or for worse, where we live, what we eat, and how we fight for justice. Tell us how, Dr. Chatelaine. Well, in my book, Franchise, I chronicled this moment in which Black America meets McDonald's. And it's a specific time in U.S. history after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., where the question is, what next? What would be the pivot for the civil rights struggle? And as we saw with the George Floyd summer in 2020, Many people believe that it would have to be Black business, Black ownership, and Black entrepreneurship. And at the very moment that there's an infusion of capital from the federal government to Black communities to open businesses, McDonald's, and then later the fast food industry at large, starts to see a market opportunity. And that's by bringing in Black franchisees and targeting Black consumers. Now, they've been doing this for a while. And as a matter of fact, they just settled a lawsuit or didn't settle a lawsuit. And they should have settled a lawsuit. They were sued by black franchisees because we've been talking about McDonald's and others uh, on the show, but particularly McDonald's, because that's a particular kind of franchise with uh, it's about real estate. It's about a lot more than just bur- it's never been about burgers. And that's the, you know, the key. So they're in neighborhoods where black people are paying more insurance. Black people have to have more security. Black people have to pay more for their goods and services because of the neighborhoods that these franchises are in. And that's, I I can't run a fair business. I can't run a business at the same, you know, rate and make as much money as my counterpart that's in a white neighborhood with no crime, blah, blah, blah. Talk about that. So this is the bitter irony of the idea of equal opportunity. So from the vantage point of 1968, when McDonald's was recruiting black franchisees, They imagined that these would be people in predominantly Black neighborhoods running stores that either white people no longer wanted to run or opening new stores that targeted Black consumers. And that pattern continued. And what was part of that lawsuit, which included more than 50 Black franchisees, was they were saying that they were being redlined. And it's so interesting that the way that we talk about housing discrimination is repeated in the ways that people understand the assignment of franchises, the different caring costs of having a franchise. And in my book, I chronicle these different moments where Black folks are saying, wait a second, we are now wealthy because of McDonald's. Why is it that we are constricted in doing McDonald's business in certain neighborhoods? And I think it really shows that no matter how much financial success, um, you know, some Black people attain, it doesn't necessarily mean that racism won't shift or protract their opportunities. 
when I was growing up, there was a McDonald's in East Orange that was in Dodtown on the whole other side of town. I had to ride my bike a couple of miles to get to it. It wasn't local uh, at all. And so it was a treat for me to go and get those French fries that I think have crack on them, allegedly. When I started working at the Daily News and I started going to the different neighborhoods, you know, reporting, I noticed, particularly in Harlem, there was like a fast food restaurant on every corner. And I and I I would drive around because it was stark, you know. So like on 125th Street, um, actually right right off of the FDR, there's you know fast food restaurant, fast food restaurant, liquor store, <laughs> you know. And I was like, I don't see this in in you know Riverdale, or some of the other neighborhoods in New York, right? And it started to be clear to me. And even in East Orange, if you go down Central Avenue, you know fast food, fast food, fast food, you know, every other block, no real grocery stores, you know, no real. So it's food deserts with these options that are unhealthy. So yes. So talk about that a little bit as well, because you say they influence how black people eat, how we live. Let's get to the eating part and how McDonald's has been complicit in keeping us unhealthy. Allegedly. One of the things that um, we often lose sight of when we talk about issues like food deserts, and sometimes we use the language of food apartheid, is that the economies that fuel the food industry are imbalanced. And so the types of subsidies that the fast food industry had available to it with its uh, minority ownership programs that were endorsed by people like Richard Nixon and every White House sense has said, you know, black entrepreneurship at all costs. But a lot of that went into fast food franchising. So if you think about the corporations thinking, okay, we want you to do business in black neighborhoods. Well, there's only so much space they're going to grow in. And so you see this concentration of black owned franchises in black communities. And that density is because they've gotten really good at getting that market share. Well, why are they so good at this market share? supermarkets are not defined as small businesses. So they do not have access to small business loans. The margins are really tight in supermarkets because a lot of that food is perishable. So if I go to you and say, well, how am I going to make some money in the food industry? You want food that can be kept in freezers that have um, the ability to be preserved for long periods of time. And I'd say, well, why don't you open a a supermarket? And you say, well, I'm going to lose all my profits every week, every time the food goes bad. And so the incentives to reopen supermarkets in neighborhoods that were damaged by the uprisings in 68 and forward, they weren't there. But what was there was a robust opportunity for the fast food industry to not only say that they were going to provide burgers and fries, But they said there's going to be jobs, there's going to be all of these entrepreneurship opportunities. And so people really lined up behind that idea. We're talking with uh, Dr. Marcia Chatelaine. Did I I pronounce your name correctly? It's it's Marcia, but it's all good. Okay, no, Marcia. Marcia Chatelaine, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, 2021. She won a Pulitzer Prize for this book, uh, franchise. Uh, Take us back. Uh, why why this you're you're a professor you're a rec- you know you 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 are you are uh well schooled you know you you know what you're talking about and the book is franchise the golden arches in black america why did you pursue this as a topic for your first book so i'm a child of the 80s and i grew up in chicago and one of the things that never left me when i was doing my phd at brown university my first book was about Black Girls in the Great Migration. It was called Southside Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration. And the first time I really had contact with the history of the Great Migration 
it was through a program sponsored by Black McDonald's franchise um, owners. And one of the things I thought that was strange was I was a pretty well-educated kid. I went to one of the best schools in the city, but my exposure to Black history had to come through this organization. And so I always thought to myself, what does it mean for so much of Black cultural life to come to the fast food industry so that when people were talking about Black people in fast food, they would talk about consumption. But what I was most concerned about was what were the ways that the fast food industry showed up for Black folks in cultural events, in providing those first jobs and providing opportunities for people who had records with felony convictions? What does it mean for McDonald's to be basically taking on the role that I believe the state should play in providing the playgrounds, the sponsorship for historically black colleges and universities and scholarships for you know, kids athletics. What does that mean when a fast food restaurant is doing that in black communities? And what does that mean for communities that are left behind? And so ever since I started to think about the role that McDonald's had played in my life that had nothing to do with food, but had been opening up access, I came to the conclusion that it's harder and harder for people to make a case and say fast food is bad, black folks shouldn't eat it, when it's playing all these multiple roles in our communities. 866-801-8255. Um, as I'm reading your book, I, I wanna like McDonald's and at the same time, I don't. Was that on purpose? Did you, you want to make sure that we, we were uh, uncomfortable with, you know, you know, because again, there's so many people that I, I, I know that have built wealth with franchises. On the other hand, you know, there's still this disparity that that has to be. And then there's the, the food aspect of it. Like, what are we eating, really? What's a what's in the McNugget? Oh, well, <laughs> um, I'm not going to answer that question because I don't have access to their recipes. But this is what I will say. You know, as a historian of black culture and of black people in a black life, I like black people. And I'm never going to talk down to black people or say you did this wrong or you should have done this. But what I'm going to recognize are the conditions that Black people um, have to make choices within, right? What are the constrained choices of being Black in America and wanting an opportunity, wanting to see us do good, but not having the full range of possibilities in front of us? You know, someone asked me, is this a takedown book of McDonald's? I said, you know what, McDonald's is the least of my problems. My problem is a capitalist system that suggests to Black people who are out on the streets asking for the police to stop killing them, asking for fair housing, asking for good schools for their kids, asking for jobs that don't, play, that don't pay poverty wages. And someone says, well, how do we open up a burger restaurant in your community, right? Like that's the problem. And so for people who make their money in franchising, those are the options that are put in front of you. But I wanna make it very clear that that franchise is not gonna be the pathway to freedom, no matter what McDonald's or any other corporation says. So this is Thrive Thursday on the Karen Hunter Show. Let's, let's take McDonald's off the table. If you were giving advice to someone with your, you know, academic background and research and study, what would you tell them to do if they had a little chunk of money? Maybe they got a little invest and little inheritance. Maybe they saved up some money, got a hundred thousand dollars right now. It's a lot more for a McDonald's franchise. Let me just be clear about that. A lot more. But what would you tell them to do? If they had enough. For if they had a hundred thousand dollars, just burning a hole in their pocket, um, I would ask them what are the financial responsibilities they have for themselves and their communities? I would say take a portion of that and give from your heart into charity or some way of giving back. And I would tell them to you know, invest that really, really conservatively because 
I think we put the idea of small business as a kind of fetish that we worship in our society. This small business is going to not only make you rich, but it's going to improve your community. It's going to do that. I prefer that money to go into a grassroots campaign so that we don't have to worry about a burger restaurant determining, you know, the wages that people, you know, have. And I don't want young people to have to work at a fast food restaurant in order to have a pathway to pay for college. I think that we've lost our way to believe that the private sector can actually solve the problems that are about the public good. So I would say invest it conservatively and find ways to actually invest in people because that's Mm. ultimately going to be our pathway to freedom. I sit here today, um, the daughter of a man who was one of eight children slept in a bed with three brothers until he graduated from high school uh, in Newark, New Jersey, two rooms. He was raised in with his mother and father and uh, started a grocery store in the neighborhood, right under the house, the, the two room apartment that they lived in underneath was a store that he took over when he graduated with his business degree from Allen. And he turned that into something that allowed me to go to college without debt and to have my first car out of school and and just really be set up to buy my first condo at 21 and give me a perspective on life to never have want for anything but this was a small business community-based grocery store corner store that provided everything from easy wider to fruits and vegetables so you can get everything and he opened seven days a week and and really served and hired people in the community to work there who also were then able to um, you know, start a life that they may not have had. And I, I think about that every day. There, there is not difficult. It's just, re- it requires some vision and some focus, what you're talking about and some will. And some policies, because that story is virtually impossible today, virtually impossible for a person to be able to create that much economic stability for themselves, their families and their community with a small business. And so the question is, what are the legislative interventions that we can have so that a, a small a, black businesses are carrying so much weight on their backs? And we saw that, you know, this past summer, people said black business, black business. Some of these businesses got really popular. They couldn't even fulfill the demand and people forgot about them six months later. And so if we had a really solid minimum wage, if we had free college, if we had free childcare, and if we had Medicare for all, then we can really see the potential of business to actually support people. But if we have these systems where your job is tied to your, you know, your wellness, your ability to go to school, and you don't know what you're going to do with your kids during the day, then we are not able to generate that kind of stability in this economy. And we could have that, but there's a whole swath of people. When you say free, 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 they turn into demons and they, you know, they throw their bodies in front of the train because they don't want other people to have a leg up. And it's so weird to me that you would care about somebody if you're OK, if you if you would care that somebody is getting something that you're not getting, if you're OK, it's it's a, it's it's really a weird psychosis that people have. Like, why do you care if somebody's getting free college and having a life if you're good? Absolutely. And, and then we villainize the idea of free resources for everyday people. And we lose sight of the incredible subsidies that fuel industries. McDonald's is able to be McDonald's, not because of its innovation and because the burgers are so good and the fries, you know, they slap. That's not it. It's because there are ways that that industry is so deeply subsidized with the cheap food costs, 
their ability to accumulate incredible real estate portfolios, their access to government capital for minority and women biz, um, owned business programs. All of that stuff is free as well. But we don't see the costs as a society. What we do see are individuals. And anytime individuals become the target, we lose sight of the bigger picture. So maybe it's a language thing. And you're, you're, let me correct myself. That's not your first book. Franchise is not. Southside Girls, which you brought up, Growing Up in the Great Migration, <laughs> is your first book. This book is the Pulitzer Prize winning franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And you've also created something called the Ferguson, Ferguson Syllabus Social Media Campaign. This is uh, Ferguson because you write about this in your book about the McDonald's being center during Mike Brown's murder uh, that set the world on fire because, you know, we remember it like it was yesterday, August of 2014. But McDonald's was in the center of that, too. What's the Ferguson, Ferguson syllabus? The Ferguson syllabus was my call to action to other educators to dedicate the first day of classes for that academic year to Michael Brown and all of the students in Ferguson who wouldn't have a normal school year, who wouldn't mm. be present on that first day of school. And to really kind of hold within our classrooms the poignancy of what had happened in Ferguson and what was continuing to happen in America. And it was really incredible to see people, whether they're teaching kindergartner or 12th grade or a graduate seminar, to really say, what would it mean for us to use our training and our intellectual energy and our academic ideas to deconstruct the complexity of what happened in Ferguson and not this kind of talking head. I have a point, you have a point, you're wrong, I'm right. But rather to say, you know, what does our learning allow us to do to be more empathetic and more thoughtful about our response to this national tragedy? Uh, Marsha, um, doctor, excuse me, Dr. Chatterling. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, no, you earn the, all of the, the, the degrees that you have um, at DRM. Chatelain, uh, C-H-A-T-E-L-A-I-N on the Twitters and MarshaChatelain.com is where you can follow her. What was going on in your home in the south side of Chicago that uh, sparked this kind of um, service? Because it is service. Oh, wow. I mean, I just, I grew up around people who worked. I mean, really, really worked in every sense of the word, you know. Um, I was raised mostly with just me and my mom. And she was one of these people. She woke up, she did her first job. She drove me to school, picked me up and went to her second job. And I always felt like there were all of these very rich stories of people like my mom, working people that the people they served had no idea about. Um, my mom was a, you know, a CNA, like many, uh, you know, women from the Caribbean, many black women in America, being a nurse's aide in hospitals, doing um, private care for people in their homes. And the day my mom retired from the hospital, I went by to see her and everyone said, oh, you're her daughter. You know, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a college professor. And I think everyone just got real quiet because they saw my mom in one light and they, you know, they filled in the blanks. But, you know, I said, yeah, you know, my mom put me through school and I'm a college professor now. And to see the kind of weight of that work has always been something that I, I try to, you know, honor and, and pay tribute to in my academic work. What did you do with your Pulitzer money? Listen, I ain't got my check yet. It's so funny. One of my <laughs> former students said, I don't know about the Pulitzer, um, but, you know, you know, do you know much details? I said, I don't know much about it, too, but I hope they have my current address to run me my check. I was kidding. Run me my money, <laughs> Pulitzer. Run her her money. That's right. And, um, and where, where do you keep the little, uh, the, the little statue, the little, is, is it still like a crystal? Did you, you didn't get anything? I don't know. 
I don't know yet. So um, the announcement was online. I found out on Twitter. I was trying to feed my son a bottle and I was like scrolling in my phone. I thought it was a, a bot that was playing with me, you know, like those bots that were trying to convince black people to vote for Trump. So I was like, this bot is just messing with my emotions today. Um, there hasn't been um, a determination of when the awards are going to be because of COVID, but right. I am so excited um, and I'm so honored. And it's so not about me. I think it's about a generation of Black historians who are trying to really put at the center the life of Black people and the many relationships we have. So I'm really proud to kind of carry the torch for them. The book is called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. It won the Pulitzer for History. Uh, hopefully she'll get her check and her and her little uh, crystal <laughs> statue soon. Uh, as, if no one, you know, for people who haven't read the book and people who are thinking about getting a book, give us a story that we've never heard before. Well, there are so many stories. So in the winter of believe of 1969, uh, none other than James Brown, the godfather of soul, gave a press conference and he said, I am done with music. My new passion is the gold platter restaurant chain, a franchise that he had gotten funding from the Nixon administration to open. And I the remember. first one was for, pause for a second, because people were like, oh, James Brown was at the White House and blah, blah, blah. But he was there lobbying for his you know like we can get things from people that we don't agree with and even well, trump listen, that, did some things and he was like i did all of this for the blacks and they still don't like me you know but there were folks in there they got things for themselves trust and believe so please tell this story about james brown with nixon so i don't even know if people believed him but he said i'm gonna do this franchise it's the golden gold platter restaurants and it was going to start in macon georgia and it's supposed to spread then it became like a convenience store. And then all of a sudden it shut down. It, there's no record of it. And I think that this was very much a story of the late 1960s. The Nixon administration was disrupting and killing black radicals and ruining the lives of people who were searching for freedom. But they also understood that they could keep some black loyalists in the Republican party by doing these gestures. And so there's an incredible history of people like Wilt Chamberlain, posing up to um, Richard Nixon to open a chain of liquor stores. Um, I talked very briefly about Brady Keyes, who was on the Pittsburgh Steelers, who got upwards to $9 million from the White House and other different um, foundations to start All Pro Chicken, which they had out in New York City and in, you know, um, in Cleveland and all these different Black places. And I'm just, you know, I like to capture these moments that are just so strange. You know, very few people probably know that Julian Bond, you know, the elder statesman of Black America, he franchised a Dairy Queen location uh, near Morehouse College, and it caused all sorts of drama. Yes, franchising was supposed to be the way to promote Black ownership and increase businesses. Mahalia Jackson, you know, leased out her image to Glory Fried Chicken. Muhammad Ali opened Champ Burger. I mean, people were really excited about this possibility. And I think from our perspective in 2021, we're like, what were they thinking? Why were they tripping? But if you think about how limited opportunity was for Black people just a decade earlier, and for these celebrities to lend their name and their credibility to the possibility of opening these businesses that could employ people, that could lift up communities, you understand the appeal of it, even though we know that it didn't quite work out as imagined. Get the book, y'all. There's so many great gems in there, a lot of history, because that's your your underpinning. Uh, that's what you got your your PhD in African African American history, right? At Brown. 
Um, I did American studies, but I definitely focus on African-American history. Awesome. Dr. Marsha, nice to meet you. Chatelaine, come back anytime. Your next book, of course, because there'll be another one. What's the next book that you're working on? Listen, I can't talk about my tracks before I drop them, but I want to continue on this thread. I want to continue on this thread about America after 1968 and and what we lost sight of uh, after we lost King. So there's more to come. Looking forward to it. Congratulations. And let us know when you get your check so we can um, (laughs) ask you what you're doing with it. We'll follow you on Twitter. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.